week i'm actually going to be discussing johnny horn with Anne of trauma peaks but before we get too much further into him i wanted to hand over the mic so she can in- introduce herself further hi um, um my name is gosh listen to that <laughs> i get nervous right off the bat um i was trying to find out who, who do i want to be i'm trauma peaks right do i have to pseudonym or my name's Breebel and <laughs> and um you can call me Anne. But I am a, um, I have an alphabet soup list of disabilities of my own. I have a son who has an alphabet soup list of disabilities, some that match Johnny's. And I also am a speech language pathologist, meaning that I I work to help people who are non-speaking learn to communicate. And which means I work a lot with their communication partners to help teach them how to speak with the non-speaking people. I think the best starting point is, of all things, something that was in the script near the end of season one. One of the big components that they talk about, about why Johnny Horn is where he's at when we get to the original series. Johnny was nine years old and Audrey was an infant. He's pushed down by the stairs. And does anything about this, does this reaffirm or contradict um, your knowledge on like disabilities? Or is there a specific disability that Johnny has? because of this or is there something else that was he was born with that could lead to this um i i I think you know within that scene and i just watched it in prep preparing for this uh, this morning it happens in a scene where johnny is actively grieving laura and you hear him howling and in pain and we you know audrey's concerned and she goes and opens the door and she sees him on the floor with dr jacoby and her mother and her mother is in a state of hysterics that she she says I can't I can't do this again I can't take this anymore Johnny you know and and she's just in this terrible state and and then Audrey sticks up for her brother and she wants her mother to, to lay off of him you know because her mother is really overbearing and and on him so essentially you know in that moment Audrey blames her mother for being the problem because she's never left Johnny alone never left him alone. That's why he's like this. And then Sylvia, who's completely dysregulated and in a really um, heightened state herself, calls Audrey a little bitch and then blames his disability on her because she pushed him down the stairs on Thanksgiving. And, And Jacoby right away jumps up and says, no, 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 no. That's not how it happened. That's not your fault. Johnny did not get his disability from being pushed down the stairs. Um, being pushed down the stairs would lead to something like traumatic brain injury, right? And, and that would have some cognitive effects to it. You'd have some attention, some working memory, some executive functioning struggles, as well as some maybe pain and some sensory struggles within that as well. But, but Johnny, if we're to believe the diagnosis given to us in the final dossier, it says autism. Okay, which means it was there for present from birth. It was a neurodevelopmental difference that he has. And I don't believe that anything that could have happened to Johnny was caused by being pushed down the stairs, other than uh, it was just another traumatic episode in a lifetime of trauma that he experienced. Um, I know that Jacoby mentions Johnny's trauma um, and that that 
as another as another facet of that. Yes. And as another facet of difficult, traumatic family relationships. Yeah. But the cause, no. No, I couldn't I couldn't believe that in a in a moment. I'm glad you brought that up because when I thought about this scene, and I know that it was a deleted scene, but I thought they when this was initially written, they wanted this to be like a central moment of like Audrey to introduce herself or something for the remainder of that season and season two. But there's something that just never seemed right that this would be a thing that way he has would be set off by this. I always thought it was something that he was born with. And like you said, in the final dossier, I guess uh, I know there's a sub- subjectivity with the final dossier, but at least out of the two, the autism aspects seem to make more sense to me. I, I agree. I agree. And and the autism and, and just trauma. I mean, we look at the, the Horn family in general, you know, we see, we see struggling relationships for Audrey or Johnny or Sylvia. And that, that level of injury is unlikely to result in, in a Johnny Horn. The, the one thing I was thinking of is that, um, you know, even though there's a lot that can be said about Sylvia and her relationship with Johnny, I think one of the things that I was interested in is that because he has such limited screen time compared to Ben Horn and Audrey Horn, uh, is there something about the presumed absence of Ben and Audrey from his life that should be addressed in terms of Johnny's upbringing and anything of, in his life as well? I think Johnny is a case of neglect. You know, I, I mean, I mean, we, we Sylvia has been described as an absent mother, and beyond that, I fear that she's she's also an abusive mother. She's a mother who's profoundly dysregulated herself. If you see, you know, think about her in the in the pilot scene where Johnny has just learned that Laura is not coming, and you watch her hand. She's fisting her hand. She's she's putting her head in her hand. She's clearly showing symptoms of anxiety, and inability to regulate herself to care for her children and I see the effect of that on here and and reading about you know a complex PTSD one of the the mitigating factors that's supposed to help people who have these diagnoses and who have undergone trauma is strong attachment to a primary caregiver which neither Audrey nor Johnny was able to receive because of her own whatever we call it, whether it's trauma or just her inability to be present and caring for that. I, the, the scenes with Sylvia are, are painful to watch. They're very painful <laughs> for me to watch. One part that's really good to address is that, well, in The Secret Diary, Laura mentions Johnny at first uh, on October 3rd of 1984. It implies that he's apparently left alone and uh, she talks about how she thinks she understands him better than most others. Was there anything about that fundamental relationship about Laura? And uh, I mean, if you want to bring up stuff about what Laura's dealing with at this point in her life, that's totally fine as well. But was there anything about Johnny and how they connect that that rang true to you? Very much so. And I see them both as people who are both neurodivergent. Um, Laura with complex post-traumatic stress disorder as well, and with whatever else she was carrying around and could see and identify with Johnny, a, a, a person whose parents really weren't there for her um, and that were actively kind of creating a more chaotic environment for her and for him. And I think she saw that in him and they both recognized something in each other that was like-minded. Um, one, of, one of the things I believe they shared was a hypervigilance, a very, you know, and a strong need for sensory regulation. We see Johnny rocking a lot of times. That's a lot of times, you know, an effort to help regulate himself. We know that Laura did drugs and had sex 
to help regulate herself. And I know that she recognized in Johnny someone who, it's almost like reaching out for love, right? He just wanted companionship and someone to sit with him. Um, and she, I think, needed the same, but people were always trying to pull at her and wanted this from her or take from her. He did not do that. And I, she did find a great comfort within him. Admittedly, they there isn't is at least going by the secret diary. There is a bit of a limited interaction with him, but she does begin to start tutoring him on December fifteenth of nineteen eighty six, and she referred to him as seemingly lifeless, unattended, and sad. But even with this, she did see him three times a week for one hour at least, and uh, the horns paid her fifty dollars a week. And she said that she likes spending time with him especially since there's no ulterior motive on his part. Uh, was there, now that there's more of a active interaction with her and Johnny, was there anything about uh, this interaction and how they, how they talked with each other that would uh, help him or anything that, uh, that would help the two of them in the long run? In the long run, I, I mean, just the, the comfort they provided to each other and the acceptance. I think they radically accepted each other, right? And maybe that's something Laura had to mask. Laura's the homecoming queen. Laura had all of these problems, but she was expected to be so much more. Johnny had all of these problems, but no one expected a thing of him. <laughs> you know? But when they got together, they could just be themselves. One thing about this scene in December 15th in her diary, she talks about congratulating him on a shot, but going back to kind of uh, this dysregulation aspect, that, that diary entry ends with something that she's too horrified to even write down in depth. And it, it appears as if she'd lost her temper with Johnny. She says, um, and she mentions, you know, I have to do a lot of lines around Johnny, she says. So she's got to regulate herself to be able to commune with him, to, first of all. And then she said she lost her patience with him. And it happened once and she felt miserable. She said, um, quote, I did a convincing as hell imitation of Bob. It was cruel the ugliest I had ever felt. I made sure to apologize and explain as best as I could as soon as it happened. And what that says to me is unlike Sylvia who continues to be dysregulated and, and to have that cruelty come about in her relationship with Johnny, I, we never see Sylvia apologize to Johnny ever. But what we see here is Laura recognizing what she's done and stepping back and apologizing and offering him that respect of, oh, I really overstepped my bounds. I hope you can forgive this. One of the things I read in, um, what's it called? What My Bones Know by Stephanie Fu is a memoir on complex post uh, PTSD. She talks about uh, sessions with her, one of her therapists in which she learns, and I learned it reading her <laughs> work, is that it's not the traumatic event that's the most important but it's the repair has there been a repair has there been an attempt to make right from this wrong and to get on the same page and we see laura doing that here with johnny and we don't see his parents ever doing this with him i think that's notable to even go further with the relationship of laura and johnny is that she reads to him and specifically sleeping beauty and she goes through uh, uh, to help him understand. And it, at least, uh, in, again, the, you know, with Laura, she's very upfront about everything in this diary. So I don't think she's lying or misconstruing anything, but I think she really does care to help him uh, understand everything that is being read to him. 
and certainly at this point, wants to be able to help him through all this. Yeah, for sure. She talks about, um, where's the quote? He often gets his very confused, lost look on his face, she says, as if he is afraid he doesn't understand anything. And she says she always stops and tries to explain. She's a very receptive communication partner, probably the best one he has, right? So she's there, she's watching him, she's paying these hypervigilant, very fine details and observing his affect. How is he responding to this? And she's paying attention in, in ways that, you know, he deserves in ways that she deserved as well. It's just a wonderful experience for her to be able to provide that care for someone. I know that you know, one of the things I think about when I think about Laura and Johnny is the fawning in a way, you know, and Johnny offers Laura an opportunity to provide that care and to fawn over someone in a way that she really didn't get. <laughs> She was not only supportive of him, like with reading to him, but she was also supportive of playing bow and arrow as well. Because, uh, you know, it's that, that's like a, a very prominent part of his identity because you see it with like what he wears. You see it in season two when he fires and uh, it seems like there's a joyous scream of like every bullseye that he gets. Was there anything about having her presence that was worth discussing and why he has such an identity built around this part of him? I don't know about, I don't know um, how to answer that question, uh, really. Um, but, but I, you know, one thing I, I noticed that Laura's keen to is she's okay to go with whatever it is he wants to do. And one of the treatment methods we use in therapy and um, education is a child-led treatment, right? So we want to meet the person where they are and we want to meet them within their interests and to share that with them. And that builds rapport and builds relationship as well as lets them know that they're respected and they're validated and they're cared for as, as a human being, right? And I think that's one thing that she shows. Um, I don't know how much to go beyond it, you know, in terms of the shooting Buffalo beyond beyond that, unless we get into more of the, um, the indigenous culture and the white settler culture aspects of Twin Peaks. Um, but with Laura specifically, I think that she's just a caring, respectful uh, special education tutor, as described by uh, Sheriff Truman. And apologies if this ends up being like an armchair, like psychologist perspective, but I always kind of took it with Johnny, at least, is that there's this thing that he absolutely loves. And he, he doesn't really, I'm sure that his family, uh, whether it's Audrey, Sylvia, and I would be shocked, but Ben, is that I, I can't imagine them really going out of their way to do this with him. So I think being able to do this with someone else would be enough to make him happy. And uh, the thing is that Laura, it, we, it, we, you know, it seems like there's a very genuine connection that she has with him. And I think that being able to share something like this is something that like mean, would mean a great deal to him. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think just just the ability to, you know, we call it joint attention or, you know, parallel play. We're doing something by someone else with someone else and enjoying that companionship and we're enjoying that connection. And that's something he certainly didn't get from his family and got most of all through Laura and Dr. Jacoby, you know, ultimately his helpers. Um, so so Laura being there and doing that with him, I, you know, provided him a, a lot of joy and in, in, in that he did not get from his family you're right there this is actually one of the few actually i guess nicer parts of the secret diary because as we go through it's like there's a more deepening friendship with the two of them but in, uh she referred to her time 
on January 20th, 1987 as spiritual. She said that it is her happiest and saddest memories, which was because she spent uh, three and a half plus hours with him. And her and uh, Johnny Horn says his first full sentence, which is, I love you, Laura. And Laura thinks this is the highest compliment that she has ever received. I mean, I feel like this is about like the height for the two of them, really. But did you have any thoughts on, you know, what it's like for Johnny for this to be his first ever full sentence and like what Laura got out of it? Yeah, um, just my my first thought is like, we're not certain it's his first sentence, but that's what Laura thinks, right? So we don't know. Um, but but the fact that that's one thing that was heard is, is really is really meaningful. And I love this scene. I just love this scene. And as I was reading about, um, I read about trauma, I read about trauma treatment a lot. And one of the treatments is storytelling. This was a day where Johnny didn't want to be read to. Um, he wanted Laura to tell her personal stories. And they were kind of, I think they were laying face to face in the grass. They were both laying on their stomachs in the grass facing each other, I think with their arms out. And um, he wanted story after story after story. And then she says he wanted nonfiction, life experiences. So she's like, well, what would I have that he could understand? And then she realized, much like way back to three men and a baby, you know, her perspective is like, doesn't matter what you read, as long as you read it in a pretty voice, you know, you can read about a fight scene and he'll get it. But, you know, I, I think Johnny was catching on to much more than she was even aware of. I think that the, the, what they shared was she shared, and I don't know what she talked about. She doesn't say what stories she told or what life experiences she talked about, but simply the ability to tell them to an a non-judgmental listener who cheered her on and simply like revelated in the fact that she's telling them was really something to her. I mean, who could she talk to? She talked to Harold Smith a little bit. She couldn't tell Donna a lot. Even Donna doesn't know me, but she could tell Johnny just about anything. And that was um, a necessity for her. I think that that gave, gave her a lot of joy and a lot of almost, you know, perhaps even therapy. You know, it was therapeutic for both of them to be able to sit and be honest with, with one another. And we touched on it briefly with Johnny and his relationship to Jacoby. I thought this was pretty interesting because even though Laura has a more than odious relationship with him, like near the end of The Secret Diary, she does imply that it seems like he's been his doctor for some time before he met Laura. And uh, the reason that I'm so interested in this relationship is that despite, like, for all the, uh, all the, honestly, quite honestly, problems with Jacoby, I always got a feeling that from his scene before the funeral that Jacoby seems to be effective, and I would even say genuinely caring for Johnny, because uh, even just in season one, how many times he's creepy in plain sight, or how many times he compromises with, like, doctor-patient confidentiality, and I never got that sense that he was like that with Johnny, at least from this scene, but also nothing in the secret diary ever gave way to that. And certainly nothing after uh, season one ever gave me that impression as well. Yeah, I, I got the same impression. He was just generally, he was very caring and he was you know, very genuine with Johnny. I love this scene before the funeral because we see, you know, again, it's Audrey's perspective hearing through the door. And so much of our, our perspective of Johnny is so shuttered almost, right? And so we see the shuttered view of him and if we hear 
Sylvia complaining about her son and Ben complaining about their son and quote the problem anytime I have a problem with Johnny and Jacoby is there you know the, the, the deal is they want him to take the headdress off for Laura's funeral and he doesn't want to do it you know he's vocalizing distress he doesn't want to do it and then Jacoby gives him his own agency and he says well you do it yourself why don't you do it and then Johnny does it you know once he's allowed that agency for someone else and then they have a genuine embrace a genuine caring embrace you know so I think that you know, for all the horror <laughs> that we think about when we think of Jacoby and, you know, him just letting things right out without a lot of treatment, I think we do see a genuine affection there for, for Johnny. And before we get too much further in the original series, it is probably good to mention Johnny Horn's birthday and not quite the missing pieces, but the script. And it's definitely worth mentioning that for everything we talk about Laura up until this point, uh, strangely enough, she is not in this scene at all. Because it's Johnny Horn's birthday, it's in Ben Horn's office. And then uh, also we have Jerry Horn, Sylvia Horn, Leland, and I think that's it for now. Certainly Audrey wasn't there because Sherilyn Fenn was in the script. But is, I feel like there's something to be said about it's his birthday and there's just this constant mounting frustration. And I guess, I don't know if this is necessarily to be fair. I think it's mostly set off because Leland mentions Laura's uh, photo on Ben Horn's desk. But it does prompt the fact that uh, Johnny is indeed secondary to his whole birthday scene. Absolutely. I think Johnny was secondary to his whole life in a way when, you know, when framed from the horns perspective. And the whole gist of that scene appears to be um, even Sylvia you know, and Leland confronting Ben about having a picture of Laura, but no pictures of Johnny or Audrey right in the middle of his son's own birthday party. So that, I mean, it just kind of hits the hammer, hits at home like this kid has been neglected. This kid doesn't have that primary caregiver and that primary love, and he's got to seek it elsewhere. So he gets it from Laura. He's getting it from Dr. Jacoby. He's getting it from the places it is because his parents are too busy fighting <laughs> about other things to, to attend to him or too busy with their own uh, dysregulations. And it's a sad scene. You know, it's, it's a, you know, someone's birthday party and, and they're secondary to the whole event. And I think one of the sad parts is that this could have been like the last time he could have seen Laura and the fact that she ends up not showing up for Because from what I remember, it's been a while since I've read the scene, but it's really just her having a more than unethical interaction with Ben Horn at this point. So unfortunately, the, Johnny doesn't get to see her, which brings us to the pilot where, you know, everything we talked about with Laura and the relationship throughout the years is that, you know, he's very understandably devastated by her death. And then uh, Sylvia's reaction, I know we talked about it before, but I feel like there's something emblematic about the family failing to help Johnny, because in the case of uh, Sylvia's relationship with Laura, it was pretty indirect, and she seems, it's not even really like her death is a straw that breaks Camel's back, it just seems like Sylvia is just frustrated with Johnny in general, and uh, I wasn't sure if there's anything else we could or should discuss about Sylvia and Johnny's relationship because of uh, this scene in particular. I just see Sylvia being completely stressed out to the point where she's disassociated all the time. You know, I don't see her being able to care for her family in a way that she maybe could have had she not been so constantly overwhelmed. I don't, I don't understand how you can have someone as sensitive and sweet as Johnny as a son and yet constantly see him as a problem. 
And I feel like every scene we see Sylvia in with Johnny, they're tightly connected as if, you know, the mother feels anxiety, the child feels anxiety and vice versa. I think we see that with Sylvia and Johnny, but we don't see that repair and we don't see that affection. And it, it's just, it's, it's just a strong oversight. One of the only times we see, you know, the, the only times we see Sylvia being kind to Johnny is when she lays her hand on him after the accidents in the season three, right? Um, and, and that we see, we see that genuine affection and almost grief, but Sylvia's, I feel for her. I feel for Sylvia, I, but I, I feel more strongly for Johnny for having to deal with her as a mother. The next, uh, next time we see Johnny, it's uh, when he's at Laura's funeral. But I think one of the things that's worth mentioning is that he brings Peter Pan with him. Of course, there's, you know, I'm sure there's some sort of connection about Neverland and like being a kid uh, and not having to worry about responsibilities necessarily. Is that something that you think that was conveyed in that? Or is there something else that could or should be addressed about Johnny with uh, with Peter Pan? You know, we're coming off talking about Johnny and Sylvia. And I think that is maybe one of the most interesting connections between Peter Pan and Johnny Horn to me is that Peter Pan, he doesn't want to grow up, but he has this really, just, I don't know how to describe it, but it's um, it's a very complicated relationship with mothers, right? Um, the, the Lost Boys, do they want a mother? Is Wendy the mother? Is Peter Pan the father? He gets confused, but but he has this kind of um, distrust of, of grownups, right? But also of mothers. There's, there's a part where, um, you know, Wendy's telling a bedtime story about the wonderful mothers who will leave the windows open for their children to all the lost boys. And Peter says, Wendy, you are wrong about mothers. And he tells her, long ago, I thought that you, like you, that my mother would always keep the window open for me. So I stayed away for moons and moons and moons and then fell back. But the window was barred for mother had forgotten all about me. And there was another little boy sleeping in my bed. And I think this, um, kind of distrust and dislike of mothers is something really central to the Johnny and Sylvia story as well. That makes a lot of sense. And I feel like this is one that I, this is more behind the scenes, but I thought it was a pretty interesting story is that when Robert Bauer, I forget if it was his idea of bringing Peter Pan, but I know that when he brought it with him, Dana Ashbrook uh, saw him with holding Peter Pan in his hand. I think he made a jab and I, from what I remember, Robert Bauer, I think, downplayed it. I think Dana Ashbrook could just concede that he was just, quite frankly, just kind of being a jackass at the time. But honestly, I, I think the thing that I like about this is that they end up becoming the best of friends and I think are still friends to this day. So I thought it was really funny how Peter Pan was like this thing where, I mean, maybe they would have been friends regardless, but I thought it was really fun. I, I, there's something I thought was really heartwarming that they both had this like misunderstanding and then it led to a decades-long friendship. Yeah, very much so. Um, I, I love this. I love that. And it, Robert Bauer, I, I, I listened to, gosh, I wish, oh, I listened to him, his interview on Twin Peaks Unwrapped. And he, he talked about this scene and, and, and when he met, and when we met Dana. And he went to a bookstore to find something for Johnny and he found that first edition that he'd carried with him. Um, and he, he said, Later, just another kind of a, an, an industry insight. He said a friend of his wife was best friends with a producer um, who worked in a trainee program on the color pilfer film with Spielberg, and was uh, had a first assistant director job on a film called Hook, <laughs> right? And so, so Robert Bauer ended up giving this family friend his first edition of Peter Pan too. So it, it just kind of like stretches off, and the connections continue. But um, 
I do love the connection between Bobby and Johnny. I think there's kind of something wonderful there about the, you know, kind of both the lost boys, you know, Bobby, Bobby, you know, kind of having this rougher path, this more, um, and then, you know, kind of ending up growing up, whereas Johnny, more like Peter Pan, took the other route. Well, I guess also uh, on the topic of Johnny and Bobby, there is that vague connection because after the reverend says everything about Laura, where Johnny says, amen, and that prompts uh, Bobby to shout amen and go off on his spiel. I'm not sure if there's really a connection of behind the scenes within universe Twin Peaks, but I did think there was something interesting uh, about that to bring up. I agree. I agree. I don't know uh, what more to say about it, but I, I did. I just love that scene. I noticed um, upon rewatch this morning that I hadn't noticed before. Johnny says amen when the pastor is done speaking. He's seen mouthing it while this pastor is talking at the side of her casket. So it's like something he's got an amen, amen, amen. And he said it almost as an affirmative after the pastor says, just let it be said that I loved her and I will miss her for the rest of my days. And then that's the first time we see Johnny mouth, amen. You know, it's just like, oh, and you know, Bobby feels something similar, you know, you know, so it's just this, this deep connection that both, both young men felt toward this dear woman who they've lost, right, and, and it all comes to a crashing halt, right, and I love that Johnny is the catalyst for, for Bobby's moment, you know, Bobby's meltdown, so to speak, at the funeral, which is one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> And sadly, though, uh, it seems like Johnny, he's more sporadic for the rest of the series because we get him a little bit during uh, near the talent of Ben Horn's uh, Civil War arc. And then there's the scene where Johnny, he's uh, shooting the bow and arrow as uh, Ben and Audrey are having their heart to heart, which, uh, strangely enough, is actually a scene that was supposed to be used in season one. They just decided to put it in season two. Yeah, I wasn't sure if, that, uh, if there's the fact that uh, the fact that Johnny's in it so in a much more limited capacity. I mean, I'm sure there's an argument to be made that what Ben Horn and Audra are going through are more pressing for the show. But I think that just knowing how neglected Johnny is, if this adds to the story in any capacity. I'm not sure. I, I you know, just him continuing on on the path of his special interest, right? This is something he does, this is something he loves to do, and he's gonna do it for all the end of time. <laughs> while the world goes on around him you know I, I i wish i knew i wish i knew this one it's uh it's more about sylvia and ben but i feel like uh johnny does receive the uh collateral damage of it is that at the end of near the end of season two when ben's trying to tell donna that he's the real father that it caused like such like a cataclysmic event for both the haywards and the horns and uh that really leads to sylvia being in uh it's taking care of johnny and at least if we're going by season three, I feel like she's better at it than than she was in the original series. Because when we see her at the house, there's no one, there's no caretaker. It's really Sylvia. And the thing is that Ben, he's like, you know, they, they it seems to be told, conveyed that he's like paying for a lot of this, if not all of it. So he could feasibly put in a caretaker. But I will say this, that come season three, Sylvia seems to be taking care of Johnny directly and shows like genuine concern for him as well. I, I agree. There seems to be more of a responsibility on her part. I mean, just, just the fact that she's in there alone with him. I think in, in that scene where we see him beginning to run, who let him out? She, if I, I, I watch everything with closed captions because I can't hear without my subtitles. 
<laughs> so, I, but I noticed she says, Mary, who let him out? So it seems as if there's someone else they've got to help her. Maybe, but we don't know if it's, you know, a housekeeper, if it's someone to help her there, but there's someone else in the house, but it really is just her and Johnny. And what a strange where place to end, you know, someone who loves, you know, you know, indigenous cultures, Johnny, someone who loves, you know, being out and about in the waterfall and being able to shoot his buffalo targets is now in a gated community, right? And in, in what was called a, a McMansion, I believe, in the dossier, right? So, but Sylvia's genuine concern for his well-being, I'd say, is something we don't see until season three. One of the first scenes where he's more prominently introduced is when he's running and he crashes into the wall, specifically the frame photo of the Great Northern Hotel. And uh, I mean, unfortunately, like, like the, of course, this is where we get into a bit more of an unpleasant scene. He's uh, subsequently confined and bounded. One of the things I was really interested in, though, is that putting aside that Lynch is clearly the one who made this teddy bear, do you think there's something about this thing that uh, can verbally speak with him when he's confined, do you think that's something that would help Johnny in a situation like this? Or do you think it's something that it, it either it helps him or it hinders him? Because I feel like something like this, it's meant to be a support to help him, but something about it just seems off. It's not just the look of the teddy bear. Well, you, you, yeah, you put the nail on the head, I think. I mean, this is a terrifying creation, right? Hello, Johnny. How are you today? Hello, Johnny. How are you today? And it's funny because it's like it's talk, talking to him, but there's no way for it to respond. And there's no way for it to, I mean, it's not AI. It can't have a conversation with him. It can repeat itself incessantly while this horror is going around around him. So the teddy bear, and God, what is that in its mouth? <laughs> what is that? There's something where definitely there's something about Lynch where he makes when he creates art in any capacity where he has a fascination with electricity. And then, of course, there's something about the eyes that just has a very Lynchian aesthetic to it as well. And the thing is that Johnny doesn't really look like he really enjoys this. It's not and again, it's not just because of the bear. It's not just because he's uh, he's bounded or the fact that he has injuries on his face. I think it's really honestly, it might really just be the bear. That's the thing that he just likes the most out of all of this. The, the, the bear is like, it's it's almost like an insult in a way, right? I mean, we we try to provide supports for people with disabilities and we try to make toys for children with disabilities that they can uh, manipulate and interact with. And sometimes it just goes horrifically wrong. You know, I, I, working in the field, I've seen some really strange things. <laughs> but the bear, nothing like the bear, the bear takes the cake, the ultimate, the, the ultimate, but it's, it's like, I just, I feel... For someone like Johnny, and in and here I want to talk a little bit about um oh age equivalencies, right? And one of the deleted scenes is called 27 going on six, I think. And and there's this horrible practice that's been going on for decades in which we talk about someone in a what the developmental age they are. You know, what does the average neurotypical person have at skills at this particular age? And we're gonna see, you know age mismatches and you know as and that bear seems to bring that age equivalency into full focus for me just like this is a 40 year old man you know who's being subjugated to this horrible like bear it looks like he's got gormonphosia in his mouth almost and is repeating but it's not it, there's nothing he can do to interact with it it's just it's just this horrible thing that he's subjugated to. And I think that's just telling us to 
how much as a society we need to grow and we can make these McMansions, but we can't provide supports or a pleasant life for our, you know, our, our populations with disabilities. It's, it's, it's just really, it's a sad, sad scene. I cannot watch that scene without sobbing. Every time I watch it, I sob hysterically. It's so sad. And the, I'm glad you brought up the age equivalency because it was one thing in the original series when Audrey said that he was 27 going on six. But the thing is that if this is 25 years later, that means he's 52 years old. And there has to be something of uh because there's something about the bear where putting aside the creepy nature of it uh, or the fact that it's like this fascinatingly terrifying thing. It's almost like it's like talking down to Johnny, like he has made zero progress in those 25 years. And I mean, you could make the argument if it's maybe it was with good intentions, but I feel like that, after you know, once he reaches 52, that there's got to be a better solution to comfort him in a situation like this. Absolutely. And it's probably another person rather than an object. Right. I mean, we, you know, we, we it's just the fact that it was there. And it was still something that they were trying. It just shows you how little we know. <laughs> you know, we know more than that. I mean, I mean, this is, let's be fair, this is a TV series, but it's not that far from some things that we've seen in special ed situations, right? And unfortunately, uh, the timing of all this is actually even worse because, uh, you know, it, even if this was a few hours earlier, uh, this could have gone differently. But uh, unfortunately, we have to talk about the Richard Horn scene, which is like one of, and, you know, given how thorough and pleasant some scenes in part 10 can be, this one is probably up there for me. And of course, I know Sylvia and of course, Richard are the focal points, but I think there's some about the helplessness of uh, of Johnny. And uh, it's probably worth mentioning is that I forgot the actor's name, but it was a stunt, you know, it's a stunt double. You can tell he has the build of a stunt double. And the thing is that if he wasn't bounded the way he was, that could have very easily stopped. Uh, I mean, who knows? Maybe Richard could have made a bad situation worse, but there's at least something, there's something that Johnny could have had that could have chased Richard Horn away. I love that. I, I never even thought about that, but you're absolutely right. That that man's name is Eric Rondell. And I think he was hired because of the, the need to put his head in a wall, right? And with the running scene. But um, but you're you're right. Johnny's a big man. He's a big dude, and he could have easily, when I mean, we see him running, he's got physical prowess. He could have helped his mother in that situation, but God knows why for his own safety, and that's kind of the crux. We do these horrible things sometimes to people, quote, for their own safety, when really we're just making it more dangerous for everybody. The thing I, I notice about Johnny in these scenes, and Johnny appears in episode nine and 10. Episode nine is, this is the chair, it's when, uh, Betty Briggs um, entertains the, 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 she brings out the little, um, the hidden, hidden special message, right, from, from Mr., from, from Briggs, Major Briggs, and, and, and before, and we see, like, you know, and, and um, Beverly and Ben are, there's a funny hum, something's abound, right, and I think Johnny, it, it's tuned to other sensibilities and can maybe sense some of these things. And he could have helped in this situation had he not been bound. And even in this situation, when, when he is and he, the chair gets knocked over and Richard's there and it's this horrible scene and Charmaine is playing, which is a, a track that they used in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, right? And, and so that brings in all, all, of, all of that with it. But, but we see him running in place, even laying on the floor in the chair. He's still just trying to run. He's still trying to get away. 
you know, from from this situation and the, the the fact that he's bound up that that I can't handle it. I just can't handle it. <laughs> it's so sad. And really, the last scene that I have, and to be fair, I think this is less about how Sylvia handles Johnny at this point and more of just where she's at. But when she calls Ben Horn, she tells him about everything, and the first thing he says, like, is Johnny okay? And her first thought was, Johnny wasn't attacked, I was. And uh, that proceeds to a, oh, you don't care about me, do you? And then Ben says, of course I care. And she's like, well, I'm going to get my lawyer. And uh, Ben, uh, you know, it, putting aside all the problems of Ben, especially in the original series, uh, I, I at least think that he's leveled off at this point. And there's something about him not being able to see Johnny. Because I think that in the final dossier, it seems like he really, he, not, he, he can't see Johnny. Was there anything about Sylvia and Ben's interaction in this scene in particular that I think should be should be addressed? I think so. And I think just um, as I'm a caregiver myself for my son and, um, you know, I can identify with Sylvia in a way when, you know, when someone's always wanting to know about the person with the more obvious disability, like, oh, my God, are they OK? And you're like, well, well, well what about me? Because I'm here, too. And, I, you know, whereas that's not a good reaction, I can identify with that. And I think that it's not unfair, given what she's going through, to be, again, we know Sylvia is a dysregulated woman. We know she has her own struggles. But her relationship with Ben is probably, you know, I mean, her, her I just, it's just an unhealthy, kind of toxic, confrontational relationship, you know, that's further damaged Johnny. You know, it's just kind of like repeat and replay, repeat and replay just more of the same old, same old, you know? And it's just so sad. <laughs> this is one where, you know, it's like in the original series where there's a certain dynamic with Sylvia and Ben, where it's like, I think there's a lot of justified scrutiny from like Johnny's birth up until that point. And it is worth mentioning is that what Richard does is extraordinarily heinous. So it's understandable of why Sylvia would be that way. But it just seems like where we're going within a full circle aspect of that deleted scene from season one compared to the last scene that he's referenced. Because, yeah, Johnny's not anything after that, but it just seems like he he can be secondary in a lot of cases. Maybe to a lesser extent to Sylvia by this point. But, you know, it's just like Ben, he's too busy with the Great Northern. Uh, the Audrey arc, I mean, it's, it's even hard to even unpack that in any level. Yeah. But, yeah, it's another factor of Johnny just being secondary and just uh unfortunately not being addressed in a lot of cases exactly exactly he's just he's not even left to his own defenses he's he's literally caged in his own house right you know and whatever that's the solution that they found for their family this is what sylvia's decided is going to be functional and for, for them and with you know kind of disastrous consequences and it, I, I want to mention, John Thorne mentioned, I think it's John Thorne, mentioned something about that scene, an ominous whoosh. He, yeah, he says, we see a lot of people suffering, but none more than Johnny Horn. And I think just admitting that, just admitting, you know, and if we think about, you know, nothing, nothing about us with it, all of us, you know, kind of a disability mantra. Um, what have we done to make sure that Johnny, the Johnny Horns of the world are radically accepted like Laura did. Well, you know, we see like it's, Laura's dead, 25 years has passed, the world's gone to hell in a handbasket, right? And here's Johnny Horn bearing the brunt of the suffering. 
Yeah, unfortunately, there's not really much else uh, to say about Johnny. I really wish we could end on a more positive scene, but the only thing I could think of, and not sure if this really ties into Johnny, but with part 10, uh, where it's like there's a whole Laura is the one that uh, Margaret talks about, and I feel like the more I watch part 10, the more that permeates that whole episode of like the type of violence that's seen, uh, like the just the just the more cosmic aspects that are explored in part 10 as well. I mean, I would love to think that there's something about Johnny that can be included in this. And again, I, I know it's Twin Peaks. I can't really confirm or deny anything. But yeah, I don't know. Johnny's just one of those characters that's really fascinating. And I mean, maybe it's the lack of screen time that makes him more fascinating. But at the same time, I do wish he was in it more. Yeah, I do too. I do too. And I think that's kind of telling for our society, you know. David Lynch and Jennifer Lynch have done wonderful work with disability in general. And I was, what a, you know, what a revelation to see disabled characters on television in the nineties, first of all, I mean, we had it, we had a few, but, but David Lynch really put them in there. And for, for whatever reason, they are present in here and we just don't see them enough. And I, and I think that exclusion is, is telling of how far we have to go as a society. I guess since it seems like we're winding down, uh, was there anything else you want to tie up with loose ends regarding to Johnny or any social media that you'd like to plug? I just want to go back to the that wonderful afternoon with Laura and Johnny uh, in J January 20th, 1988. One thing she says, and this ties directly with what we were just talking about, um, she says, you know, he wanted to be spoken to rather than spoken about. And when we see Johnny, he's not spoken to. One of the things I noticed, Johnny in the, the debris and butter baguette scene, Jerry greets everybody except Johnny. He's at the table too, but he doesn't even include him in the greetings. Um, and so, so what can we do, you know, to better include folks like him and to, to make sure that we are reaching out and making connections to the people in our communities and the people in, in, in our lives um, who we may not have as easy access to and I, and I think that's a really important um important part when we talk about Johnny oh absolutely but yeah no it's um yeah I, of course uh people can find you under trauma peaks for Instagram was there anything else you wanted to talk about with uh what trauma peaks was about or is there anything else you want to mention regarding it I made it as a way to process my own trauma I uh, just as a quick backstory, I, I am old enough to where I was able to watch the original airing of Twin Peaks with my family uh, when it aired and completely blacked it out and forgot about it. Became a David Lynch fan, you know, throughout the years and then forgot all about it as I got bogged down with my own life and our own disabilities. My son was born in 2006. And I got to tell you, it's like I've, I've been living in an alternative universe since then. Um, but but coming back to, and I didn't even realize the return had been made until 2019. When I rewatched, I rewatched season one and season two in, in 2019, and then Firewalk with Me a million times, <laughs> my favorite movie, um, and 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 the return, and how much it has to say about trauma. And the secret diary of Laura Palmer, I was astonished. I'm like, wow, this is a this is a the profile of CPTSD. This is just amazing, you know. After undergoing everything, and in in talking about you know Johnny's disability and the inability of our society to adapt to that, 
what do we need to do to be more trauma-informed as a society? I, I, I made the account as a way to explore and talk about it. I'm grateful to, to David Lynch and Mark Frost and all the people involved with Twin Peaks for giving us a language to talk about trauma. I think it's a really fascinating um, insight into it, not just personal trauma or trauma that we would have undergone from abuse, but also um, societal trauma and the trauma of the white settler essentially, you know, in, 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 in that, in, in the trauma of the United States in a way, and what we've done to the land and how we keep doing it, um, and how it's hard to slow down and what can we do to slow that down. Um, it's just, just mind blowing to me. And it's this endless source of fascination. So I use the platform as a way to explore. I hope to be able to create some kind of an art with it. Someday I had in my head, I was going to do a docu-series about everything and it's just like oh my god where do i even begin right um so so you begin with curation and collection i guess and that's 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 what the the instagram account is all about uh and um sometimes it's pets <laughs> you know we try to have some friendly things but but a lot of it's um the experience of trauma through the lens of twin it's good to have like the you know there's a social media presence about one of the most central and focal points because a lot of people talk about, like, you hear about, like, with Laura's Ghost, you hear a lot of other, like, you know, a lot of great artists and authors, they they discuss the more, uh, the more nefarious aspects of Twin Peaks, especially, like, with Fire Walk with me. Uh, but yeah, it's really good to have, like, a social media presence that really focuses explicitly on that, because there's a reason why a lot of people stick with Twin Peaks for years, and I think that you really tapped into that with what you do. I was shocked because I just created the account last year. I was shocked that there was no trauma peaks. I'm like, oh my God, no one's taken it yet. How can this be? Because it seems so central um, to the story. You know, what is, what is Judy if not trauma? And, you know, John Thorne says that. And, I, you know, I, and, and, you know coming to it as well and seeing that in the universe, I'm like, yeah, this is a real, real thing. Why isn't it talked about more, right? And we got Marinelli doing it, Courtney Stallings, and all these wonderful, wonderful writers. Um, and I, I just hope to be able to contribute something more substantial someday to that as well. I thought you did a really great job with it. And um, yeah, no, I just want to thank you for coming on, Anne. Well, thank you so much, Colin. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you about this and geeking out. It was a, a big delight. Together, forever.